0: We're going to start with something a little different than normal. What we're going to start with this morning as we transition our time from our kind of family singing and announcements and and all of that into the time that's dedicated to the word of God. What we're going to do is we're going to start by listening together. So um, I believe that prayer is one of the things that we're to be dedicated towards. The the word of God is clear about that. We, as the people of God, are to be dedicated, devoted to prayer. And in our culture, what we've done with prayer is we've said that prayer is noise. So prayer is saying a bunch of things, reciting a bunch of things, bringing a bunch of problems. We we think of God as the divine wish fulfiller. Here's what I want, God. If you're a good and loving God, you're going to meet me here, and give me these kinds of things. Um, That's completely foreign. Many of those ideas are completely foreign to what prayer is and how scripture talks about prayer. Prayer is, I am convinced primarily listening and being quiet before God to receive. So uh, the psalmist writes the famous verse, be still and know that I am God. So, what I want to do for a while, I don't know, I'll, I'll wait till I feel settled in my spirit. <laughs> what I want to do this morning is I want you, I want to invite you to be still and know that the Lord is God. So, just quiet yourself of all the noise, of all the busyness, of all the things you have to do when you leave here all the items on your to-do list and just quiet yourself before God. Devote yourself to prayer. Be still and know that I am God. I would invite you to meditate on that that verse. Be still and know that I am God and perhaps meditate on what that even means. What does the word God mean? So join join me in a place and a posture of listening and let's just sit there and you might be uncomfortable and that's okay. The fact that we have a hard time sitting quietly before God tells us something about ourselves and our culture. So just sit quietly, be still, and know that I am God. David writes in Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not too proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, O Parker Ford Church, O Pottstown, O southeastern Pennsylvania, put your hope in the Lord now and always. In our culture a hundred people gathered in one room, sitting quietly and not looking at a screen, is spiritual warfare. This should be the rhythm of the people of God, to be still before God, and to know Him as God. Did anyone hear like a verse like come to mind during that time or, or like an attribute of God didn't go ahead and raise your hand if you did like I'm, I'm honestly asking did anyone yeah Carol what did you hear thou art, thou art worthy of praise so in the quietness what your soul cried out thou art worthy of praise anybody else yeah Patty I love you I love them tell them, I love you. I love them. Tell them. That's awesome. That is beautiful. Yeah, Mike. Uh-huh. Be. Just be. Anybody else have a hard time just being? <laughs> yeah, Dave. Mercy of God filled that space. Yeah, surely. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> let's let's all lift our hands to heaven and just say hallelujah three times together. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Anybody else have something they feel like was for us this morning to hear? Yeah, Beth. The spirit and bride say come, come. Yeah, Byron. Byron's sitting between two little children and the whole time what came to mind was let the little children come. That is beautiful. Sitting in a room with a hundred people, just being quiet and not looking at or listening at a screen is spiritual warfare in our culture. And it's probably spiritual warfare in your own home. To sit in your living room, sit in your bedroom, sit at your table and just be quiet before the Lord like a weaned child, David says. I have quieted my spirit before you like a weaned child. How can God speak? (laughs) Well, he's always speaking. How how can his word come through if we don't give him a moment of silence? How are we to receive the word of God if we don't give him a moment of silence in our lives? Be still. Be still. No. Acts chapter 5. We're going to get this morning the third description of the church. We got a description of it in Acts 2. We got a description of it in Acts 4. And here we're going to get another picture of it. One of the things at the beginning of this series that I emphasized is if something is repeated, we should probably pay attention. It, its importance is being heightened ...for us by by the Spirit of God and by the writer. And so there's this ongoing description of the church. So I want to look at all three descriptions this morning together. Acts chapter 2. And I've been reading this every week. I hope, my hope and prayer is that you would have this memorized. So if you're sick of me reading it, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. We're going to keep looking at this word because I want it to be part of us. I want it to be in our bones that we know... The design of the church by God. Acts chapter 2 says all the believers devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. They devoted themselves to koinonia. Not fellowship. They didn't devote themselves to getting coffee together. They devoted themselves to koinonia. Which means there was a mission of God. And they were devoted together to go after that thing. That's what fellowship is. God's given us a purpose and a mission. Let's do it together. That's what being devoted to fellowship is. They devoted themselves to sharing in meals, which that, that is the, the way of saying they devoted themselves to remembering the bread and the cup. And they devoted themselves to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders... And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day it was the Lord who added to their fellowship those who are being saved. The second description of the church comes in Acts chapter 4, and we covered this uh, previously. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully. What did they testify powerfully about? The resurrection. They testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. Because those who owned land or houses would sell them. And bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For example, there was Joseph. The one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas. Which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Then the story which we covered last week of Ananias and Sapphira, which is in contrast to Barnabas, which leads us to Acts chapter 5 verse 12. And this is the third description of the church. It says, but the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade, but no one else dared join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women, as a result of the apostles' work Sick people were brought out into the streets on bed and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. A couple things here that are a little bit new. as as our picture of the church, the early church continues to expand and fill out and grow. There's this interesting dynamic that's happening between the apostles and the early believers and those in the community who are watching them. They're watching them. They're watching to see what happens. It says in verse 13, no one else dared to join them. No one else dared to join them but they had a high regard for them which is an interesting tension to be in i really like what's going on there i'm not going to join in that because of the consequences we might not face this decision with the church today but we face this decision all the time with all sorts of things i really like the way i really like the way that they are warring against racism in our culture, and I'm all for that. But I'm scared of what that might look like if I join in there. I'm squ- scared of what that might mean, like with my grandpa or my relatives or whoever. Right? That's just an example. There's there's a lot of examples of this happening in our culture. I like what's happening there, but there there's a cost. So. So the people are seeing, the people of, of Jerusalem are seeing what's happening. And there's reverence for what's happening. There's, there's obviously power there. But there's a fear of the consequences because who still holds the power? The Sadducees, the, the high priestly family, and of course, above them, Rome. And there's consequences to breaking the chain, breaking the way things are done. So no one else... Dared to join them. Then, verse 14, it says, But despite this, that no one, no one, there's this fear of joining them. There are people who are believing and, and they're bringing to the Lord crowds of both men and women. I, lo- I love the way that the New Testament honors women in such a powerful way. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The most important thing that's ever happened in history. Who witnesses it first? Women. Women. This is so, and I cannot tell you how anti-cultural this was at the time. To constantly... And there were also women there with them. There were women in the room praying. There were women in the room with Jesus. There were women who support the ministry. The very first to see Jesus resurrected are women. So we see the the spirit of God redeeming, redeeming culture, redeeming the image of God in women and lifting, lifting it up so that they're not second class citizens, but rather seen as image bearers of God. This is beautiful. Both men and women are brought to be healed. As a result, verse 15 of the apostles' work, six people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. In the spirit of listening this morning, in a spirit of quietness, I'm not going to say too much about that. Just let it just let that hit you for a moment. Apparently, when Peter's shadow, not not even his hands, not Jesus. When Peter, when his shadow touches someone, they're healed. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> do you? <laughs> like, I, what is that? What does that mean? Have you ever seen anything like that? There's only a couple other stories in scripture that I can think of that, that are similar. There's the woman in Luke who reaches out and touches the fringes of the garment of Jesus. Remember, she had been bleeding for years and years and years. And she reaches out and she says to herself, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. And she reaches out and just gets the end of his garment. And immediately the word says, her bleeding stopped. Then later, there's this story of people would take um, take uh, strips of cloth, like handkerchiefs or something, that the Apostle Paul touched, and then they'd ship them out to other people to touch what he touched, and they were healed. The, the Apostle Paul touched, like like literally, like a handkerchief or a scarf or something. He would touch it. And the healing power of the Lord was so powerful that when people took that and gave it and laid it on someone else who was sick, they were they were healed. That's what the Word of God says. So we in 2018 are put in an interesting place, uh, particularly in our postmodern enlightenment uh, culture uh, with science and modern science and medicine and all of this. Um, are, are we going to believe this is how God works? Are we going to believe that God can work this way? Are we going to believe that this actually happened? Or perhaps it was just coincidence. Maybe it was just a coincidence that people were healed at this time. Or or was this actually the miraculous, powerful work of Almighty God among us on earth in humanity? And if God worked that way then, and we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, how does God work today? How does he long to work today? The same way. God desires to work with the same power, <laughs> same power today. And, and you, you might be uncomfortable with that. Take it up with the Bible. Okay? Yeah, take, take that up with the Word of God if you've got a problem with that. This is, this is what the Word tells us about God. And in each description of the church, there's description of the miraculous healing of God. One thing that's interesting, a lot of people have noted this in the modern world. Way more miracles take place in poor places than they do among uh, the wealthy. That's just, that's just strange. Like, I'm a missionary kid. I grew up traveling a lot and, in Asia. And there's more supernatural things that happen there than happen here. It, and whatever reason, because we rely so much on our minds and intellect, or rely so much. And I, I and I, I don't hear me say there's. <laughs> my wife is a nurse. I believe in modern medicine. I believe it's a gift from God. It's a wonderful thing. Don't hear me say anything else. If you are sick, you should go see the doctor. I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise. But you should. We should also be praying, and seeking healing for people. We should put ourselves out there a little bit, and and lay hands on people and pray for them and and seek God's. Healing, I think God has invited us into this story way more than any of us have hoped to be true. God has invited us into this same story more than any of us have perhaps dared to believe would actually be true. Because wouldn't that be amazing if this was our story? It's too good to be true. The whole gospel is too good to be true. Everything about Jesus is too good to be true. He defies every box. He defies every limitation we put on him. He defies all of our human thinking, all of our hopes of what might actually be. He defies that all. Jesus doesn't fit in any of those boxes, so let him be as powerful and strong and mighty as he is. If you're in a place of discomfort with that, wrestle with the scriptures. Wrestle with God. It's a good, good struggle. a Good wrestle. It says, crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits and they were all healed. So there's two types of healings. There's a healing that's taking place of bodies and then there's those who are in some way demonically oppressed that are being healed. Um, I obviously, as you can tell, do not believe this at this point, but I grew up, in, in a culture that was slightly cessationalist. Uh, so, so the idea was that God worked like that. He doesn't work like that anymore. He doesn't do miracles anymore. And, um, and then I had a whole bunch of experiences in my life that were like, uh, I don't know what to do with that, and, unless God still works this way. So uh, one thing comes to mind, and I'll, I'll pick on my dad. It's, it was a funny story. My dad uh, was helping plant this church in this tribe in the Philippines remote, in the middle of nowhere like, in the Philippines, and he was preaching, and he was preaching through an interpreter, so he would preach, um, he was, in his mind, he thinks in English, right, and then he was preaching in Cebuano, the language he knew, and then there was an interpreter interpreting it into this language of the people group there, which was a totally separate one, so it was going through, like, layers of translation to get there, does that make sense? Um, And so, He's preaching, and there was this man who was obviously disturbed, what the Bible would probably describe as demonically oppressed. And he was standing in the back, and he kept screaming in his native tongue as my dad was trying to preach uh, and, and trying to teach. And my, my dad's not like a super charismatic or anything like that. it's a very rooted, grounded man. And he just, I remember, I'll never forget this, he looks up, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to be silent. I've never heard my dad talk that way. Just reading the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to be silent. And he said it in English. This guy doesn't speak a word of English. And it was like he was muzzled. It was like duct tape was put over his mouth. It was like he was bound hand and foot. He went from this wild, like, distraction to the fear of God standing there. God... Still working and still speaking and still moving. Let us believe and test and push, push into him and listen. So there's two types of healings: body and spirit. Now this is in contrast that word, uh, that word "but." it might not be in your text. Does anyone have their text open in their translation? In in verse 12, is there a word, but, there in your translation? No, which, which is a problem because in the, in the Greek, that word, but, is there. Which means what about this story? That it's in contrast to the one that came before it. Now, the story that came before it is Ananias and Sapphira, which has already been in contrast to the story of Barnabas. Barnabas sold his field and gave all the money to the apostles to share with the poor. And then it tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it says, unlike Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they lied about how much money they they got for it. And they gave the portion they lied about to the apostles. And they kept the rest for themselves. And the Spirit of God strikes them both dead. In contrast to that, it says, but... Unlike that earthly way of living, unlike that fleshly way of living, the apostles and the early believers were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. This is why context is so important. Don't just read a chapter, read the context of of stories in scripture. Moving on, verse 17. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. This is so cool. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go back to the temple and give the people the message of life. So the apostles, this time it's not just Peter and John, it's it's apparently all 12 of the apostles. The Sadducees, who are the power holders of the the temple system, um, they're jealous of all this attention that is going to to the apostles. It used to go to them, now it's going to uh, to the apostles, they're not nearly as cool as they once were in the culture. And the problem is these guys. Because they keep making a scene and people keep getting healed everywhere they go. And it's messing up everything. So they take them and they throw them in jail. And an angel immediately comes that night and it opens the jail and says, go on back to the temple. It's like a whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? It's like a whack-a-mole. Like, bam, we got him. Whoop! Here it comes over here. So the, the Spirit of God, bring, uh, the, the angel of the Lord visits them and, and brings them back and says, go back and do it again. <laughs> do it again. Preach to them again. So it says, at daylight, the apostles entered the temple as they were told. This had to be the most interesting experience. Like, this is going to be weird. When we show back up and the people that just arrested us are there and, yeah. So... ...they go into the temple as they were told... ...and they immediately begin teaching. They're teaching the resurrection of Christ. This is what they preach. Every single time they preach... ...they're preaching the resurrection of Christ. When the high priest and his officials arrived... ...they they convened the high council... ...the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles... ...to be brought from the jail for trial. So somehow... ...this all took place... ...and nobody is aware of it. Not the jailers... ...not the prison officials not the leaders, nobody is aware of what just happened. So they, they, they convened their, their previously scheduled meeting, and they say, all right, bring the boys in. And they go to get them, and they're not there. But when the temple guard went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was locked, the guards were there, but when we opened the gates, it was empty. When the captain of the temple guard, we've already met him a few chapters ago. He would have run the temple. And the leading priests heard this. They were perplexed. Wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with the startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple where you arrested them yesterday. And they're teaching the people the same thing you arrested them for. Verse 26. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles. But this time without violence, for they were afraid of the people, that they would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders, never again to teach in this man's name. Instead, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him. And you want to make us responsible for his death. Because what does Peter say every time he preaches? You killed him. You're the ones who killed him. You had the power, you had the authority, and you used it to kill God's son. Don't put this on us, they say. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, this is a repetition. He's already said this to them. When they threatened him and John the first time a couple chapters ago, they said, don't preach in Jesus' name. And Peter said to them, you be the judge. Should we obey God or you? God or man? So he says the same thing again. We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Here's the resurrection again. Every single time. Raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. <laughs> Once again, this is on you. Then God put him in the place of honor at the right hand as Prince and Savior, he did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. This is the other thing that Peter always includes. This isn't the end of the story. Even though we did this, even though we crucified our Lord and Savior, he, he accepted this so that we could repent. We could turn from our sins and live a new way and obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and they decided to kill them. Now we're going to be introduced to someone really interesting. And we're going to hear about his name later in in the scriptures as well. When they heard this, the high council was furious and they decided to kill them. But one member, so a member of this council, he's got power, he's got authority, he's got a name, he's got a standing. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Anybody know where else we see that name? Paul. Paul later says that this very man was his teacher. Isn't that interesting? Now, there were two main camps of thought among the Pharisees. And they break down, Not it's not perfectly, so don't take this to the bank or anything, but roughly they break down as more conservative and more liberal uh, in, in these two camps of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees in general were pretty conservative. But even among the Pharisees, there was division. And there were Pharisees who, like, uh, who, who did not want anything to do with Rome anything to do with the Sadducees, anything to do with the way things were. They they were zealous for the law of God uh, to the point that they were willing to, to be literal zealots and die in rebellion to Rome. So that was one camp. And then there was another camp who were more open to working with the Greeks and the Romans. They were more open to Hellenistic thought. And Gamaliel was the leader of that second camp. So he was actually open, more open to working with Hellenists and and working with the things. Now he's a very respected, respected teacher. I think it's very interesting that that he's the one who trains Paul because Paul obviously disagrees with him, with what he's about to say. Paul is in obvious well he's Saul at this time, but Saul is is in obvious disagreement with his master, with his teacher. So he says, then he said to his colleagues, this is verse 35, men of Israel, take care that you are planning to do... i got to turn around, sorry, it's too small. Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do with these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Theodos who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, so that's around when Jesus was born, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. There's a lot of wisdom here. There's a lot of wisdom here. There's so much wisdom here that the Orthodox and the Catholic Church have made him a saint. Isn't that interesting? He, as far as we know, he was never a Christian. And and yet he was canonized as a saint in in both the Orthodox and the the Catholic Church. And and he's celebrated, I think, in the fall sometime. So he he's the teacher of Paul. Now we're gonna meet Paul, who's Saul at this time. We're gonna meet Saul in a couple chapters. And the first thing we find out about Saul is that he's killing people. And he's killing the Christians. And he wants to take this thing down. So there must have been some sort of friction, some sort of disagreement. With his, with his teacher, his master. Now the others, it says in verse 40, the others accepted his advice. So they realized there, there's a, there is wisdom here. They called in the apostles and they had them flogged. They had them beaten. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus. Since that worked the first time. And then they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing. Look at this phrase, church. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. They're not rejoicing that they're free, although I'm sure they were thankful. They're not rejoicing they got cars in their garages, food to eat on the table, whatever, whatever it is. They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace in Jesus' name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach the message. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one we've been waiting for. I've talked about the Beatitudes before, um, but it felt appropriate to, to conclude the teaching this morning with the Beatitudes. That word that is translated blessed are, it doesn't really mean blessing like in English we think of blessing. Because in English, when we hear the word blessing, we automatically as consumers in modern America think of stuff. I got a new car, God bless me. We got a house, God bless me. That's a type of blessing. That is not the heart of blessing. That's not the core of blessing. Because you can be completely blessed, as is obviously true in the Beatitudes, and have nothing, physically. What it means, what that word means, that's translated as blessing, the the rough, (laughs) best way we can capture it in our language is this. You are in a really good spot When this is happening. You remember remember this? You're You're in a good place. Like spiritually, emotionally, in your soul. You're in a very, very good place. You are aligned with God when this happens. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. He's saying, when your heart is pure. Because of God working in your life. You're in a really good spot. Why are you in a really good spot? you will see God you'll see God you're in a really good spot when you're a peacemaker when you seek peace when you seek to bring wholeness to a situation rather than dividing and fracturing and breaking when you blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God you're in a really good spot when you're a peacemaker why Because how the world and others will look at you, they'll look at you and say, that is a child, a son, a daughter of God. That's a good place to be. When you see God, that's a good place to be. And so that that idea of blessing. Now, listen to what Jesus says. This is how he wraps up the Beatitudes. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heavens is theirs you are in a really good spot when you are persecuted. That's what he's saying. You are in a really good place when you are persecuted for Jesus' name. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. He goes on to say, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you And say all sorts of evil things against you. Because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. (laughs) For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted. The same way. You're in a really good spot church. When this is happening. And the apostles seem to truly have taken this to heart. After the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the infilling of spirit. They I think. They, they, they received this. I mean, because they really struggled with it before the death of Christ. They really wrestled against this stuff. They, they didn't want to be persecuted. They thought Jesus should be victorious here now. He should establish his kingdom right now. He should kill all his enemies right now. And here they are just a few years later, months or whatever, and they're being persecuted, being beaten. And they're like, we're in a really good spot. We're in a really good spot. Because God counted us worthy to suffer for his name. This is, this is so anti cultural. You with me? This is incredible. this screams against everything that, that our culture stands for, where it's mine and I get what I, I worked for, and, and it should be mine, and we're, we're entitled, and all sorts of things where it's just mine, 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 my, my way, my life. This is how I leave. This is about me. You're in a really, really good spot with God when you suffer for his sake. And I'm in a good spot. There's blessing there. And what blessing really means is God is with you. That's what blessing means. So when you say blessings to someone, what you're saying is, God is with you. Not God gives you stuff. God is with you. Blessings. 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 We began our time with, with quietness. Uh, praise team, you can come up. They're going to lead us in worship. I, I'm going to end our time just with a moment for you to meditate. Let the Spirit of God lead you. Whether it's in the Beatitudes or in the story from Acts chapter 5 this morning. Just let, let the Holy Spirit apply to you whatever he wants to say and take it with you. Don't leave it here. Take it with you. Father, thank you for the example of those who have gone before us. So whatever, like Jesus said, um, when you're persecuted, you can look at the prophets of old and say, oh, wow, God, God allowed for me to walk a similar path to his great prophets, Elijah, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They, they suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God. And, and God's blessing me. By, by joining me in their story and their legacy, and I get to walk in the same way as them. God, this is, um, this is so hard for us and, and for me to, to believe this and rest in this. So I thank you for those examples. Thank you for the example of the church fathers, the apostles, who suffered. And when they were beaten and persecuted and mocked and made fun of, things that most of us in this room have experienced very little of, um, realistically, comparatively speaking, yet... Whenever whenever that does happen, whatever form it takes in our lives, we can look back on them and say, oh my goodness, God is joining me in 2018 where I am in the same story that that he walked his apostles through when they suffered. Blessed are you. You're in a really good spot when that's happening for Jesus' name's sake because the kingdom of God is yours. It belongs to you. He's entrusted it to you. Just like they persecuted me, Jesus said they'll persecute you. So, God, I, I just I pray that you would apply whatever it is you have for us this morning to our hearts, our souls, our minds. Help us be quiet before you. Know that you're God. Receive your word and listen to you and discern your will today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand in the same church.